Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I got a question for you. Hit me. What do you think is the most underrated body part on the human? Ooh. You could could go a lot of ways, right? Yeah, You really can. I mean, certainly we... We tend to put more emphasis on the brain and the heart mm-hmm. and then, of course, throughout human history, confuse the two uh, and the role they might play. Uh, you know, I think back to the, the, the ancient Egyptians and their idea that uh, the heart was far more important than the brain and the brain was just to be removed and discarded, whereas the, the, the heart had a privileged place in the, the, the funeral preparations of uh, dead pharaohs. But, of course, it's impossible for us to underestimate the value of the heart and the brain now since we know them to be so important. But there are all kinds of body parts you have that you probably just don't stop to be very thankful for or think about very much, but they do you a lot of good. I think about the underrated facility of the toes yeah yeah to- toes are i mean granted f- toes may be fetishized as as can any part of the, the the human anatomy oh no i didn't mean that way no i mean they're like usefulness and balance and yeah. our movement and oh yeah yeah certainly but but it's not something that we tend to attach our identity to whereas mm-hmm. the brain yeah i mean our podcast has had a brain on its logo in the past you know the heart has all of these symbolic meanings where we want to attach our identity to them in addition to the, the functions that they play but then there are parts of the body that we generally don't want to think about and we don't think about unless they are giving us grief unless there's something wrong with them and then they become the center of our existence Right. It's the same way that you never think about your Internet connection unless it's not working. Right. There are parts of the body that you probably just never think about unless something's going wrong. Right. Or we go to great pains not to think about them. You know, we kind of have all these blinders up. Really, the part of many an animal's anatomy that we're going to discuss here today, the anus. The anus. Yes. Today, it's anus science on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Right. And I've I've wanted to do this episode really since, I guess, 2015. That's when I really... When you first paper. found out about anuses. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no <laughs> idea what what happened. And then I read this uh, this cool um, science paper, and I was like, "Whoa, this is this is." This is where it all comes from. This I, is this is the center of all the activity. I really appreciate you suggesting this topic because the anus turned out to be far more interesting than I had ever imagined. It is, and that's what we're going to try and outline in this this episode. Now we we do have to drive home since we are talking about the anus, and there is there's just so much. Not not really. I don't think taboo is going to be a a stumbling block for us here. But the anus is so tied into our 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 systems of humor. Mm-hmm. Like it is so giggle inducing when you when you saw this title pop up on your uh, your 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 device or whatever s- program you use to listen to your podcast, you may have giggled at the prospect of listening to say an an hour's podcast about the anus. Yeah, you'll probably notice that we talk about biology a lot on mm-hmm. the podcast. I've gotten to where it's extremely easy to talk about, say, the biology of sex without making any jokes. That's something a high schooler might not be able to do. But, you know, when you talk about it enough, it's just an interesting subject on its own. Well, sex it loses is, its humor appeal. Well, sex is one of these things. Uh, sexual reproduction is a case where I feel like most people, or at least, you know, most adults mm-hmm. are capable of having both a humorous conversation about and a serious conversation about. Mm-hmm. You, you reach that point where you realize there is this entirely serious side to the discussion and you can switch back from one and the other. But with the anus, there's it's almost we all, haven't gotten there right. Yet, yeah, it's we? almost all humorous uh-huh. unless you yourself are, uh, are are a proctologist or 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 just a medical uh, professional, mm-hmm. or you have had uh, to deal with health issues related to the anus. Otherwise, it's just all the realm of body humor. Yeah, or maybe you're somebody who studies the evolution of the anus, which mm. is something that we will definitely be touching on today. These questions about whence this hole in the backs of our bodies, where does it come from, and what is it doing? That's well, right. not so much what is it doing. That's pretty obvious. Yes, but but the way that it does it, the way that it's come to do it, and just how how it functions. Uh, uh, hopefully, you will leave this this episode with a whole new respect for the anus of any animal. Okay, now we wanted to start with an interesting fact, Robert, that you came across. Actually, a a curious little book that you found on the internet, right? That's right. So 
I was casting about for some mythology related to the anus, and right. we'll we'll get to some of that later on. Anus uh, gods and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I figured you know it's always good to to throw in a little mythology, a few monsters when we can. And I was just plugging in different ancient cultures. I plugged in the ancient Egyptians to see what uh, what was up. And I ran across this book, The Herbal Lore of Wise Women and Wart Cunners, The Healing Power of Medicinal Plants by Wolf D. Storrell. And uh, he points out that the doctors of ancient cultures were, were part of the priesthood. And for the ancient Egyptians, each physician was responsible for curing only one illness. So the pharaoh... Uh, was attended by such specialists as the royal keeper of Pharaoh's left eye, the royal keeper of the Pharaoh's right eye, and then, most importantly of all, perhaps, the shepherd of the royal anus, or the Nero foot, if I am uh, reading that correctly. The shepherd of the royal anus. Now, yes. laugh you may, laugh mm-hmm. you may, but this is actually kind of interesting because it's an early example of medical specialization, something yeah. that we've seen again in the modern world. There are a lot of reasons that a pharaoh might have need needed to have a special attendant to problems dealing with their anus. Because a lot of the problems you can have with your anus can be related to, say, certain types of overindulgent diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just in general, there's just so many digestive ailments Mm -hmm. that can occur in one's life. Uh, You see this pop up in a number of different traditional practices. For instance, mudras. Are you familiar with mudras? I'm Uh, not sure. So this is uh, whenever you see someone in a yoga pose and they're making or they're in a meditative state and they're making uh, particular little hand uh, motions, they're holding their fingers together in a particular pattern. Okay. Uh, that is a mudra. Okay. And uh, I, I've read up on them in the past. And when you start looking at the different mudras, they, they have them for different things. It's, you know, it's about channeling energy and whatnot. Uh, but it seems like most of them are related to digestion, which huh. which makes sense when you when you think about all the digestive ailments that can afflict an individual over the course of their lifetime. Totally. Now, this guy's Storrell, I want to say this book uh, does appear to be kind of in a (laughs) liminal or less than totally authoritative space. I think this guy deals in some kind of naturopathy areas and stuff, but it was curious and had some fun ideas in it. Yeah, he's he's not an Egyptologist uh, or anything, but but I, I have to point out that I did find uh, this bit about the shepherd of the royal anus backed up in some other works, including Medicine in the Days of the Pharaohs by uh, dermatologist Bruno Haola and cardiologist Bernard Ziskind from 2005. Yes, I think that fact is well attested. But uh, also, I just wanted to follow up on this other idea in his book. Storrell argues that Every culture has a primary external metaphor that it uses to understand medical insights, which is like a model through which to visualize health and human function. So for the ancient Mesopotamians, he says this model was the movements of the planets through the zodiac. Uh, For the ancient Indians, he says one of the models they used most often was the cycle of the seasons from spring to pre-monsoon to monsoon. And for the ancient Egyptians, this model, he says, was the Nile River, quote, regularly cleansing and fertilizing the thousand-mile-long oasis. Just as the Nile flows from Nubia to the Mediterranean, so the alimentary tract, also known as the digestive tract, flows from the mouth to the organs of elimination in the human body, bringing health and cleaning out impurities. Now, upon reading this, I couldn't help but notice that if this is true, what what he says about uh, the, you know, this metaphor of human health being the Nile River, the Nile River Delta, which is this lush, fertile, agriculturally productive region that sustains the civilization around it, in the metaphor, the Delta would be the rectum and the anus. Yeah, this reminds me of something that that I was thinking about uh, researching this topic as well. Like we think about the the the, the track of digestion uh, in the human experience, the the linear experience of digestion, uh, and and I wonder to what extent uh, that plays a role in just our understanding of time. Uh, when we were talking about uh, time in our episode, the, this present moment, we talked about comparing uh, time to uh, the river we see flowing past us and so forth. Uh, but here we have this river flowing inside us that is an yeah. even closer uh, metaphor that's, that makes itself readily available. 
So you're thinking maybe if we had evolved to have large brains but to not have a one-way digestive tract, instead to have, I don't know, one of these open sack mouths we're going to talk about more as the yeah. episode goes on, uh, where you just sort of like – eat and digest and poop all through the same one orifice and sac, would that lead us to have a different conception of sort of the the order of things in history and the the meaning of structure in our lives? Yes. I As we proceed here, I challenge anyone out there to imagine an alien life form, an intelligent alien life form with one of these uh, sort of rival digestive systems and imagine how that rival digestive system might impact their uh, perception of time or the universe. Take up the challenge. <laughs> All right. Well, on, on that note, we should probably begin, uh, well, at the beginning or at the end, if you'd rather, uh, by discussing just what the anus is and what it does. Yeah. What is your anus and what does it do? <laughs> Uh, the anus, of course, I, I shouldn't giggle, should I? No, I think a little, a little giggling is, okay. uh, it just cannot be avoided. Thanks, human culture. The anus, of course, as we all know, is the point of termination for the digestive system. It's the exit point for solid waste in the body. And I think one of the things we should regularly stop and be thankful for is the fact that we have an anus. It does one job. It is dedicated to the elimination of solid waste. There are lots of complex animals that are not like this. Uh, We are going to talk more about some simpler animals that have like a single opening through which everything takes place. But even complex animals like birds, reptiles, amphibians, monotremes do not have an anus but a cloaca, which serves as a general purpose opening for solid waste, liquid waste, and reproduction. You're kind of a fusing of the uh, the different categories together. Exactly. So if you imagine we had evolved from birds instead of mammals, we would probably still defecate, urinate, and give birth all through the same hole. Now, maybe if that was how we were, we wouldn't mind, but I don't know – I think most humans are probably glad that things don't have to be that way. Well, I, I think we should also be thankful that humans don't yet have the power to decide <laughs> like where their waste elimination uh, orifice will be and how it functions. Because we, would we put it down there? We'd probably put it down there on our heel so we could uh, discreetly defecate as far from the rest of our, our body as possible. I, I have often wondered that same exact thing. Why doesn't defecation happen at like the end of a tail or something, yeah. something farther away from you? But then again, why would it need to? And once you've got a tail that you need to defecate through, what happens if it gets chopped off ah, or something? And that yeah. will come up in this episode. It has come up in a previous episode. Uh, there's, it's, the anus is important, and therefore it, it really needs to be core and center to the, the, the primary trunk of the body. Now, if you're thinking, come on, guys, or if you're not on board yet, right, you know, you're thinking, like, how can we really do an episode on the anus? It's just a hole that stuff comes out of. What could there be to say about it? I would say that the anus is a surprisingly complex organ, uh, and so I think maybe we should look at its complexity and what it has to do. Indeed. So as we dive in here, I, I want to turn to the words of Mary Roach, who uh, wrote a wonderful book several years back, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Uh, I, I've referenced this in other episodes. It's just a wonderful exploration of human digestion and some uh, additional topics. Uh, for instance, there's a whole section in the book where she talks about the practice of smuggling things in one's rectum mm-hmm. and sort of the, the science of that practice. Uh, but uh, here's, a, here's a wonderful quote where she talks about uh, the anus. Quote, anal tissue is among the most densely innervated on the human body. It has to be. It requires a lot of information to do its job. The anus has to be able to tell what's knocking at its door. Is it solid, liquid, or gas? And then selectively release either all of it or one part of it. The consequences of a misread are dire. (laughs) They certainly are now, yeah. Yeah. Though I wonder, I've had this thought before. Okay, so in modern polite society, you don't want to just poop any time. Right. You know, you want to be able to control that for like cultural and privacy reasons Mm -hmm. and maybe for some hygiene reasons. But if you imagine us living in the wild, what's the reason that you would need to be able to control when you poop? Why does that matter? Well, I mean, controlling when you defecate is really important Uh, because outside of the particular human concerns, this is an issue of hygiene, but also survival. 
being able to choose where and how you defecate, it's tremendously important. And it entails everything from not pooping where you eat okay. to, say, pooping in a place where you can easily hide the stuff. We, we see this uh, every day, or at least uh, cat owners do, with a litter box. Mm-hmm. The, the cat wants to poop where it can hide its poop because it has this uh, evolved necessity to disguise uh, the, the scent of its uh, of its activity. Hmm. And then also sometimes you want to produce the right sort of round poop that will roll away from your body. Okay. This is uh, apparently the case with goats. If you've ever been to a petting zoo uh, with a child, for instance, uh, you probably notice that the, the round poop is basically falling out of the goats at all times. And, uh, and, and that is round so that it can roll away. Is this kind of like when it's, it comes out sort of like a spray of coffee beans? Yeah, just kind of like tumbling coffee beans. And poop pebbles. Uh, yeah, and apparently the purpose is these things would roll away. It's self-hiding poop. They don't have to bury anything at all. Now, I'm curious about what you said about the idea that uh, controlling when you defecate plays a role in survival. What, what would the role in survival be? Well, I ran across a, a paper a few years back. This was from 2013. The control of defecation in humans, an evolutionary advantage by Italian bowel experts uh, G. Bessati and V. Villanacci. And it breaks down the particular human side of this. Uh, and this is something I explored before when I was looking at uh, the monster science of the ghoulies. You remember ghoulies, right? The 1984 oh, yeah. film. The, the cover was a little monster popping out of the toilet. Yeah. Tagline. Tasteful. They'll get you in the end. Uh, oh, but it made me think it's like, all right, well, humans are are vulnerable when they're on the toilet. Mm-hmm. Uh, all animals are vulnerable to some extent when they are defecating. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, how does evolution play into all of this? Well, uh, in this case, the authors point out that human fecal matter would have certainly put early humans at risk from the apex predators of yore. OK, so if you run a human fecal sample, modern or ancient, through complex gas uh, uh, chromatographic or mass uh, spectrometric analysis, you'll discover that, quote, human feces are rich in volatile compounds likely to be identified by potential predators. So volatile compounds. What does that mean? Smells. Smell. Right? Yeah. yeah. And. As we've driven home before on the podcast, I think the, our human sense of smell is rather limited. Like we're seeing in grungy black and white, whereas something like an apex predator or something like even our, our pet dogs and cats, especially the dogs, mm-hmm. they have an entirely uh, different like full color HD experience of things. Well, Robert, have you ever owned a dog? It's been a very long time. I've mostly been a cat owner my entire adult life. I think most people who have dogs will know what I'm talking about. Dogs love poop. They want to smell all Mm -hmm. the poop. When I take my dog out on a walk, it's disgusting. Other people's dogs leave their poop on the sidewalk, wherever, and he wants to go to all of it. And if you try to pull him away, like, no, Charlie, you don't want to get into that. He's like, no, no, I need to. Well, there's information there. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's information on a level that, that, that humans can barely grasp. We just know it doesn't smell pleasant or it certainly, you know, doesn't look pleasant. Mm-hmm. But this is important environmental information to the dog, right? Right. So to take us back to the paper, then, the idea is that while we are pooping, we're producing smells that advertise our vulnerability to potential predators. Exactly. And the the full conclusion from the from the paper, I think, is, is rather great. They say, quote, we hypothesize that the voluntary control of defecation by our ancestors, together with greater brain volume, erect stature, opposable thumbs and other changes may have contributed to the successful march of hominids along the road of evolution. In fact, by deciding when, how and where to defecate may have several advantages in the complex prey predator relationship because spores are left in places undetectable by predators or there are no fecal tracks whose scent may be easily individuated by prey. Genius. So we f- we figured out, evolutionarily speaking, that you need to know when to poop uh, because if you just poop anytime, you may be squandering opportunities or putting yourself in danger. Exactly. So l- let's break down how that actually functions uh, biologically, though. Uh, like what is the actual uh, biology of pooping? Okay. Okay. So the first step is six to eight times a day. A peristaltic muscle contraction called a mass movement squeezes the contents of the colon 
along the path. Yeah, and peristalsis is the word for a wave of muscle contraction and relaxation that travels down the length of a tube inside the body. So if you've ever run your fingers down the length of a sausage casing to Mm -hmm. squeeze the sausage out, or if you ever tried to push the last bits of icing out of a piping bag, you have roughly simulated peristalsis on that on that tube. I want to say this is also akin to how an earthworm moves, right? It's kind of this uh this wave. Yeah, yeah, a, a wave of muscle contraction running down the length of of a cylindrical object. And in the sense of a hollow tube, that cylindrical object has its contents continually pushed down the length of it. So what happens next? The material pushes against the rectum wall with enough pressure to trigger the stretch receptors, and this triggers the defecation reflex. Now, this entails a simultaneous contraction of the rectal wall muscles and a relaxation of the anal sphincter. Little known fact, people actually have, I had no idea until last night, two anal sphincters. Huh. Did you know you have two? No, no, I just thought there was the one. No, you've got two. The internal anal sphincter is involuntary, so it holds up everything until a certain threshold of rectal wall stretching is reached, at which point it automatically says, okay, time to open the gate. But then you've still got the external anal sphincter, and this is what's under conscious executive control, perhaps for the the reasons hypothesized by the researchers we were just talking about. It's like in a submarine movie when they're going to launch a nuclear missile. Yeah. Uh, you have to have like both uh, key individuals push the button at the same time uh-huh. uh, because otherwise there will be disastrous uh, consequences. Right. I've got the missile key. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, this is where human choice enters the picture. Uh, a poop-your-own-adventure book, if you will. <laughs> so you might choose to bear down, and this will uh, raise the pressure on the rectum walls to prematurely trigger defecation. So this is, again, part of the, the choice. It's not only the idea of, the well, I'm not ready to go yet, uh, inner sphincter. I'm going to uh, go seek a spot behind a bush. You can also say, actually, I'm ready now. Let's go ahead and expedite this process. Right. But again, likewise, you can hold it back. But the larger and more liquid the load, the harder this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roach uh, quotes uh, one gut expert in Gulp as saying, quote, not even the sphincter of Hercules can hold back water. <laughs> I, I just I like that. By the sphincter of Hercules. I like <laughs> I like the idea that since Hercules is very strong, like he's got big muscles on his arms and legs and back, he must also have an especially strong sphincter muscle. Of course he would. I mean, just be, if you have the blood of gods uh, running through your body, if you're a hybrid of, of humanity and, and deity, uh-huh. uh, like why would the why would the anus be off limits? Why would that be untouched by? Uh, by the I-Corps. I, I want to hear from the, the health and uh, wellness experts out there in the audience. If you know this fact, does muscle training actually make your sphincter stronger? <laughs> I want to know. Uh, in her book, uh, Roach also quotes physician Robert Rosenbluth, who says, think of it. No engineer could design something as multifunctional and fine-tuned as an anus. And then he points out that it, to, to call someone an anus, or another crude word for anus, that you're ultimately, quote, really bragging them up. Yeah, it's saying, like, uh, you are a fine-tuned specimen. Nature made you perfect. Yeah. And this comes back to the idea of the, the shepherd of the anus, I think. Uh, because when we, we were talking about this in an email chain yesterday bef- uh, before we recorded the episode, it was brought up, well, there's only one anus. Why would you need a shepherd? A shepherd tends to a flock of sheep. Mm-hmm. And I, I was wondering, well, maybe the scenario here is more that the anus is the shepherd because the anus controls uh, what comes in and out. It, ha- it has such a vital role. It's kind of like the shepherd. It's the Well, the, the shepherd sh- is the gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah. it is the, the shepherd of poops, the gatekeeper of uh, fecal matter. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we should probably take our first break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about mythology and monsters before we uh, descend into the world of anal evolution. All right, we're back. Now, if you have been listening to the show for a while, you've probably listened to our episode on the cuteness monster spectrum we discussed uh, back in October, mm-hmm. where we talked about monsters, especially monsters from Japanese folklore, that combine elements of cuteness and horror and monstrosity. And one of those monsters we talked about was a little water-dwelling demon called the Kappa. Oh, yes. Now, the Kappa will hang out in a river, and if you get too close, he'll pull you in and drown you. 
But it gets more interesting than that. Michael Dylan Foster writes in a paper called The Metamorphosis of the Kappa from Asian Folklore Studies in 1998. Uh, he, he writes the following, quote, not only does the kappa have a penchant for pulling both children and adults into the water, but it often does this in order to steal the liver, a feat it achieves by reaching its arm up through the victim's anus to snatch the desired organ. So in order to steal the liver, uh, it, they believed that the kappa had to uncork the butt, had to uncork the human anus, removing this organ known as the shirikodama, which is, quote, a ball once thought to be at the mouth of the anus. This is and this is fascinating because you have not only do you have an imaginary creature here in the kappa, mm. but it is interacting with imaginary parts of the human body. Yeah, imaginary organs. Now, of course, one read on this myth is that uh, is that this all has to do with the observation of the corpses of drowning victims. Right. That when people were pulled from the water, they would be found to have a gaping anus. And so it looked like something had been removed that had been corking it up before. But in fact, this is just caused by, you know, relaxation of the muscles upon death. Right. But it also, I think, comes back to this idea that like maybe – we don't really we don't really think about the anus much. So you could smuggle in an imaginary uh, uh, body part, and maybe people would be sort of blind to it or okay with it. They're like, okay, yeah, I guess there's a cork down there. Yeah, I guess if you were going to invent an imaginary organ for any you know semi-external part of the body, that'd be the place to do it, right? But yeah. that'd be the place where people might buy it. Now there is another uh, Japanese uh, folkloric creature. Uh, this is a, a, a member of the yokai. You know the sort of uh, a fabulous uh, pantheon of spirits that you encounter in Japanese folklore, and it's known as the shirame. Now, I can't find a lot about the shirame from academic writings, mm -hmm. but it's at least enough of a thing that it pops up a lot in Japanese art and in Japanese pop culture. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, it apparently even shows up in the Studio Ghibli film Pom Poco. Uh, which is a wonderful film. It's a it's an animated adventure that involves these shape shifting tanukis with magical testicles, uh -huh. uh, which is a whole subject unto itself. But uh, this uh, this Japanese yokai shows up. It is a humanoid creature with an eyeball in its anus, and that's how it like kind of looks around at the world. Uh, you'd think, given the nature of uh, the human posterior and glutes and all that, mm -hmm. that uh, that might not be a great place to put an eyeball because it would be kind of hard to see out of a lot of the time. Well, but you have the, the fantastic body of a, of a spirit creature, uh, I guess, is everything's possible. Now, uh, I've looked around for some other myths related to the anus, and uh, I couldn't find a lot. So certainly, listeners out there, if you have run across some wonderful uh, folk tales or myths or certainly mythological or folkloric monsters uh, with some sort of cool, cool anal um, curio about them, be sure to let us know. But I did find one cool example in uh, a text by John Beerhorse titled Mythology of the Lenape uh, Guide and Texts. Uh, he points out that there is an ice giant cannibal uh, in the traditions of the Lenape people uh, known as the Muwi. Mm. And it's similar to other cannibal ogre traditions that you encounter in uh, native North American peoples, uh, such as most famously the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. But the Muwi is uh, this this cannibalistic monster. It's basically impervious to harm, but it's also rather stupid, and you can kill it by driving a stake into its anus. Wow. Yeah. That, that is a great variation on vampire lore because the vampire doesn't really need a heart, does it? I mean, <laughs> come on, it's dead. Why does it really, does it really need to oxygenate all its tissues? But then again, it's, we know it's drinking blood. Yeah. So if it's drinking blood, it's gotta be pooping, right? It's a creature defined by its hunger. So yeah. why is it not equally defined by its defecation? Uh, at, at least we see that with this creature. This creature is defined by its ravenous hunger. And then it's, uh, it's Achilles heel is essentially it's Achilles anus. I have an interesting question, or you can judge whether it's interesting. Why are giants in so many folklore traditions believed to be dim-witted? Hmm. Well. You know, giant monsters, they're usually not the smartest. I don't know, but you do you see that a lot. I guess maybe part of it has to do with, uh, with something we've touched on already. 
ancient humans having to compete with apex predators, uh, creatures that are that have far superior physical strengths. Mm-hmm. But then how are humans able to overcome them and even eradicate them in many cases? They use their intellect. They use uh, their cunning. Right. And so so many of these cases are a giant monster is threatening the smaller human. And how do they defeat them? They outsmart them. So maybe the giants are modeled on saber-toothed cats and bears and stuff. Yeah, maybe so. That's just my uh, you know off-the-hip read on that. I'm, I'm sure... There are papers out there that, that dive a lot deeper into it. We'll have to look into it. The stupidity of giants coming soon to stuff to blow your mind. Well, now that also makes me wonder if anybody ever hunted bear or saber-toothed tigers by attacking the anus. Hmm. We, we, can, we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we should talk about the evolution of the anus. Where does this organ come from? So for this portion of the podcast, we turn to a couple of key sources, including getting to the bottom of anal evolution – by Andreas Hainal and Jose M. Martin Duran, uh, both from the University of Bergen, Norway. And uh, Hainal seems to be the, the, the key figure in some of these studies because he's also uh, the primary author on another piece, The Mouth, the Anus, and the Blastopore, colon, uh, open questions about questionable openings. And that's one he wrote with Mark Q. Martindale. I love how both titles here remind us that you probably have to have a sense of humor if you're an anus researcher. I wonder if anus puns in, in the titles makes it harder or easier to get published in serious academic journals. I don't know. I feel like the, the anus is a special case. It kind of comes back to the, the sexual reproduction thing I was mentioning earlier. Like we most most of us have an ability to switch back and forth between the serious and the comedic, but not so with the anus. And it seems to even spill over into uh, into, into the academic world. Yeah. OK, well, these start with an observation, which is a pretty simple one, right? The anus is not actually universal in animals. Obviously, lots of organisms don't have an anus. A plant doesn't need an anus. Mm -hmm. It doesn't eat. Uh, Mushrooms don't need anuses. But even not all animals have anuses, right? That's right. Some uh, lineages of animals, such as uh, uh, Porifera, the sponges, uh, Placozoa, the, uh, uh, which are simple multicellular animals, um, Cestoda, those are flatworms, including the tapeworm, and uh, Acanthocephala, uh, this is another group of parasitic worms, they don't have a digestive tract. Sea sponges, no, no digestive tract no at di- all. No digestive tract, no. Yeah. Uh, sea sponges and tapeworms are good examples uh, specifically uh, for these. Uh, others have a gut with a single opening that both uh, takes in food and excretes waste, such as uh, the uh, Tenophora comb jellies, uh, the Cnidaria, uh, which is a large invertebrate uh, phylum that includes uh, the Hydra, uh, jellyfish, sea anemone, and coral. And then you also have uh, uh, Acelomorpha, and these are simple, soft-bodied plankton animals that live in the water. Uh, and then you also have various flatworms and jawworms as well. And the uh, the acelomorpha are going to come up several times because they are a really interesting reference organism mm-hmm. when we're trying to understand our evolutionary history and go back to the beginning of what it was like when bilateral animals first appeared. But a great many animals do have what is called a through gut, a linear track. Uh, food goes in one specialized end for food uptake and travels through specialized regions for nutrient absorption, and then it all leaves through a specialized excretion valve. And this, of course, is the anus. Now, the anus actually becomes very evolutionarily relevant here because you can't have a one-way digestive tract without an anus. Right. It has to go some, well, we have some special cases we'll hit on, but for the most part, what goes in has to come out. That's right. I guess there are a few exceptions. But generally, yeah, this is how it works. If you don't have an anus, then you've just got another one of these digestion buckets, basically. You have a bucket in your body where food comes in and digestion happens and waste comes out. Yet again, this is one of those things that I... Maybe you would like it if you were like that, but <laughs> given that you're not like that, you're probably glad you're not like that. Well, uh, Hainal brought, has, has brought this up. He says, can you imagine if we had a digestive system like this where you eat and then you have to wait eight hours or more until you can eat again? Like there's no snacking. If you're hungry, it doesn't matter. Maybe you wouldn't be hungry in this case, but you have to wait until you can defecate out your mouth and then eat again. How would that change your perception of, of everything in life? Yeah, and it's not just what's appealing to you. I mean, uh, Hainal points out in multiple places that there are 
several reasons that having a through gut, a one-way digestive tract with an anus, is very uh, evolutionarily appealing. There's a lot of advantages to it. So one of the things that's a real advantage here is what you just mentioned, the simultaneity of digestive stages. Yeah, you can eat more food while you're, while you're, you're still digesting your last meal. Yeah, you can eat one Big Mac, and while it's digesting, you can eat another Big Mac maybe in bed. Doesn't matter. You can yeah. do whatever you want. Instead of just sitting around waiting to poop so you can eat the second one right. while it's getting cold. Uh, but the second one, the second one is really interesting, I think. A one-way through gut allows more efficient metabolism of food because different parts of the digestive system can specialize in different things. And you can perform those special functions in the best possible order so that one gets done definitely before the other one. If you're doing all of your gut stuff in just one bucket, it's going to be pretty much impossible to sequence these specializations like this. But what would these specializations be? How about you've got a tongue and a mm-hmm. sensitive mouth, and that's useful because it can detect the nutritional value of foods or reject potentially dangerous substances. Then you've got teeth at the top of the track to begin the processing, chop stuff up. You've got a stomach full of hydrochloric acid and other chemicals to break down foods and trigger digestive enzymes. Uh, you've got a liver to secrete bile and help with fatty foods. And then you've got a long curled up intestine to absorb nutrients and then a colon to shuffle waste out the door. And it's important that all this stuff happens in the order that it happens. Yeah, I can't help but think of an assembly line. You know, it's the difference between a, a clockmaker shop where material, raw materials go in and a single shop maker goes through every stage of production, testing, and then the clock comes right back out the front door when it's ready. Uh-huh. In the end, if you compare like the time involved there uh, with a, a an assembly line where you have multiple individuals, specialized individuals working on different parts of the clock's production and testing, uh, and in, raw materials are coming in one section, and at the end of the line you have finished clocks uh, just rolling off the conveyor belt. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Or w- one analogy to the sack-like gut might be that maybe you've got all these – maybe you've even got all these specialized workers, but they're not in a line. They're just mm-hmm. all standing in a huge room. Right, and waiting like, for their turn or, or kind of you know, reaching over each other's shoulders to yeah. work on the clock. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you can imagine – if you try to imagine your body working this way where you don't have well-ordered organs to specialize in all of the stages of your metabolism as it goes on, uh, not too good, is it, Chief, right? Yeah. One more thing I'd say is that you can also have different species within the through-gut organisms which specialize their body parts to adapt to their diet. So, for example, once you've got a one-way digestive tract, you can say, well, I want to have this certain type of teeth to take advantage of this hard, chewy stuff that most people around me can't eat, and that'll be my biological niche. So it gives you more ways to evolve. It also means that you can grow to greater size because ultimately you have improved digestion. You can you can you can harvest more nutrients. And you're also not limited by uh, I, I believe Haynal makes this point as well. If you have a particularly long organism, yes. if it had to swallow its food and then digest it and then send it right back up to the head, yeah. that would be ridiculous. Imagine a giraffe having to do that. Uh, a giraffe does not have to do that because everything can come right out the giraffe anus. Right. He also points out that there are two sets of genes uh, in particular that are tied up here, known as the uh, Brachiori gene and the Parahox gene, uh, which is uh, also referred to as just CDX for caudal CDX. Uh, and these are present in nearly all animals, and they play a key role in the formation of the anal orifice. Yes. So he's saying that if you see these genes being expressed in tissues, the brachiary gene or the caudal CDX, often just CDX, you know that that tissue is forming an anal orifice almost every time. And if the animal loses its anus, and yes, we will mention that some animals that have lost their anus entirely, what? Uh, it often loses these genes as well. It can't be true. How could you lose an anus? Well, you know, it's it's not just a matter of misplacing it. It's just uh, it no longer becomes necessary to the the the, the functions of the organism. All right. So uh, Hainall and his colleagues, they, they set out to explore the evolution of the anus, right? Because they said it while it had been studied some, it hadn't gotten as much attention, especially through genetic research, mm-hmm. as some other types of uh, evolutionary innovations had. 
That's right. We see that's the same uh, for the same reasons that uh, that various ancient cultures have have either focused more on the heart or, or more today we just focus on the brain. It seems like the anus has just received less attention. No fewer people have asked the question: Where did the anus come from? What is the evolutionary uh, heritage of, of the anus? But studying the anus is actually pretty interesting for learning about where at what points in evolutionary history organisms divided off from one another. Yeah, they point out that studying the anus in animals is difficult in part because it appears and disappears again within many animal groups. Convergent evolution. Yeah. For instance, uh, most flatworms are anusless, but others have independently independently evolved one. And then uh, there's the uh, the polyclad flatworm uh, actually has multiple anuses all over their backs. How many anuses? Multiple. <laughs> it's like uh, I, I, like fifty anuses. It's, on... it's less than fifty. I'd okay. say it's more like six to a dozen, based on the the image that I, I saw in the paper. What if you had fifty anuses on your back and they all just pooped a little? Oh, I don't know if that would be helpful. I've, I mean, it does not seem adaptive for yeah. our ecological niche. Yeah, thankfully that is not a, a design that really was was picked up by natural selection. But uh, most – this is interesting – most members of the superphylum uh, deuterostomes, which includes everything from sea cucumbers to all vertebrates, they have anuses. But sea stars have dropped the anus from its anatomical lineup completely. OK. So they were in this group, but then they lost the anus. Right. These are the, the losers of the anus. And then some animals develop anuses as they grow. This is, I, th- I feel like I've touched on this in the past, but lacewings, uh, uh, you know, a small insect, mm-hmm. they don't poop during their larval stages. They have what's called a blind gut in which everything just pushes to the back of the gut as they eat. And then after they go through metamorphosis, they gain an anus. And then immediately upon emerging, they poop out everything they ever ate prior to their metamorphosis. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then the adults probably say, oh, to be young and anusless again. (laughs) And then there are, of course, animals that lose their anus during the course of their lifetime. Uh, A big example here, and this is one we've touched on before in our our two-parter on tails, Mm -hmm. is uh, that of uh, certain scorpions that shed their tails in act of autotomy. This Mm -hmm. is like when lizards are attacked and they drop a tail. Right. That sort of thing. Well, Sort of like, take that. Take that. I'll run away. Yeah. I'd rather you just eat my tail than eat my entire body. But- the thing is, with these scorpions, they have their anus on one of their tail segments. And if they lose it, uh, they lose their anus. And then they simply never poop again. They simply fill up uh, with poop for the rest of their lives, swelling with their, their own excrement, unable to release it. That's no good. Yeah. And this is a uh, super fun, too. Anuses can be multipurpose. Oh, yeah. So this is where we're going to talk about sea cucumbers, right? Oh, yes. So the sea cucumber does have an anus that it defecates through its anal opening, but it also breathes through its anus. That is an interesting trick. Yeah, I have not figured out how to do that yet. I would say I dare say most of you out there haven't either. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, amazing. So the sea cucumber lives under the water and it can contract and expand its anal cavity to draw in breaths of water. In much the same way that we expand and contract our lungs to draw in air, right? So we've got like a diaphragm. We can open up the lungs, suck in the air, and get the oxygen we need out of it. They expand the anal cavity, suck in the water, and then they extract dissolved oxygen from the water. Uh, where the water, it's fed into this large branching set of tissues known as a respiratory tree, kind of like the, you know, the, the pathways you see in the lungs mm-hmm. when they expand. And then when you've extracted the oxygen, the water is pushed back out of the anus. Another fact about the sea cucumber's anus that I found interesting, it is often inhabited by a crafty little stowaway. Oh. One of the best parasite writers out there, Ed Yong, has a great blog post from 2016 where he tells a story about this, and I have to relate it. So in this story he tells, in 1975, a biologist named Victor Beno Meyer Rochau was diving in the water off an island in Indonesia when he collected a leopard sea cucumber. So it was about 40 centimeters long and 14 centimeters wide. And he gets the sea cucumber home, and he stores it in a bucket of water under refrigeration. Quote, Sometime later, a slender eel-like fish swam out of the sea cucumber's anus. It was a star pearl fish, and it wasn't alone. Another wriggled out, and another, 
After 10 hours, 14 pearlfish had evacuated from the animal's bum, each between 8 and 16 centimeters long. Another one stayed inside. So 15 pearlfish in its (laughs) anus. Wow. Now, there is more than one species of pearlfish, and they occupy the bodies of lots of different marine animals, even oysters. Uh, Ed writes that the pearlfish get their name from a case when a dead specimen was found not only inside an oyster, but buried inside a pearl. Oh, wow. Uh, and some species of pearlfish merely hide inside the sea cucumber, leaving the anus to forage for prey and then returning. But others have been thought to parasitize the host, like eating its gonads in the walls of the respiratory tree. Oh, so... so- does the does the sea cucumber get anything out of this, or is it quite no, clearly a parasitic? Not that I found. Okay. Uh, if they do get anything back, I've not discovered it yet. So that is a good question. If the sea cucumber doesn't get anything out of it, why doesn't it just close off its anus and restrict access to the pearlfish? Well, wait a minute. It has to oh. breathe, remember? Breathes through its anus. So uh, for the full body horror equivalent, try to imagine a parasite that wanted to get in your lungs and you could try to plug up your nose and your mouth to deny it access, but you'd have to breathe sometime. Interesting. So we we, we probably are seeing the, the trade-off to an adaptation here. Like So on one level, yes, you can breathe through your anus, but then the trade-off is this opens your anus to even more parasitic activity. Yes, exactly. Now, to go back to autotomy, when we talked about the scorpion that drops its own tail as a defense mechanism, sea cucumbers have an even more amazing version of anal defensive autotomy. It's known as, quote, evisceration. This is a defensive ejection of one's own internal organs. Like, is it merely turning itself inside out? Is it uh, an an inversion of its uh, body cavity or is it just straight spraying guts? Sprays its own guts out and lets them go. So if you go handle a sea cucumber, which we are not recommending, do not be surprised if it poops all of its guts out at you. Uh, When the sea cucumber opts for defensive evisceration, it contracts its muscles to push much of its respiratory tree out through its anus at the perceived attacker. And once ejected, the respiratory tree kind of turns into this sticky net, which can confuse and entrap a predator. And it also contains toxins called saponins. So after doing this, the sea cucumber can regenerate its lost tissues. Not sure why it doesn't do this to protect uh, to protect against the pearlfish. Uh, huh. I think we don't know the answer there yet. I wonder if it just basically breaks down to like the cost of uh, of spraying out its guts and then regenerating them versus the cost of having the parasites there, and maybe it's just not quite worth the effort. Like it's it, it it's ultimately cheaper to allow the parasites to do their thing. Yeah, it could be the case. Uh, but one more thing, when it comes to anal breathing, it is not just the sea cucumber. I don't know if you've read about this, Robert, but some turtles breathe through their butts. Oh, no, this is all new to me. Yeah, so some water-dwelling turtles, such as, for example, the Fitzroy River turtle, use anal respiration, or I guess I should be saying more accurately, cloacal respiration. That's true. They're uh, on, on the, the on, cloacal list. Yeah, honoring the, the distinction there. But uh, anal cloacal, whichever way you call it, they breathe out of the backside opening of their, their digestive tract. Uh, it's sort of like having gills in your rectum. They suck water into the cloaca, absorb oxygen, and then expel the water that they've taken the oxygen out of. Huh. I wonder if the if the kappa would be uh, capable of a similar feat. I don't know. Hmm. I've not considered it. All right. We're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we will touch on the topic of transient anuses. All right. We're back. Okay, Robert. So we've discussed the evolutionary benefits of anuses, uh, what creatures can do with their multipurpose anuses. But what's this idea that transient anuses, some organisms can gain and lose their anus? Yeah. uh, According to Hainal, quote, there are several cases in which additional openings, connections between openings of different organ systems and reductions of a through gut to a sac-like gut can be identified. Wow. So there's a jaw worm uh, called Haplognathia, and uh, it has an anal pore. And then there's a, a microscopic uh, platozoan animal known as uh, Limnognathia. Uh, and this is actually a fairly recently discovered uh, organism. And it has a temporary opening that likely serves as an anus, but it's never been caught, or at least as, a, uh, as of the publication of this paper, it has never been caught in the act of defecating. Wow. So it, it, it can get an opening that appears, mm-hmm. and people suspect it's an anus. 
but they've never seen it poop. Right. And in both cases, these are on the, the, the creature's dorsal side. Uh-huh. And uh, Hainal points out that the secondary evolution of anal openings, this seems to be connected with the evolution of the, ex- uh, of the extension of body length okay. or overall size of the body. Okay, well, this would go with the general idea that as organisms become larger and longer, they have more of an incentive to develop a through gut instead of just a sack gut. Yes, and thus the invention of the anus or the uh, evolution of the anus. Okay, but I want to ask a kind of different question now. How did the anus come to be? Uh, We've established that the anus has evolved multiple times in different animal lineages, so it's sort of a convergent evolution, different clades figured out over time that they want to uh, that they want to have a back opening of the digestive system and also that the anus evolved in animals as they grew larger as your body grows larger it makes less and less sense to have a sack shaped or bucket shaped digestive system um so uh so you've got all these advantages that's how evolution pays for the through gut and the anus but how did it happen how did animals go from one gut opening to two well, to answer that question, I think we first want to go back to a paper that Hainal was one of the authors of in 2008. So this was by uh, Hainal and another researcher named Mark Q. Martindale. I think we already mentioned him also. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the two of these published a paper in Nature in 2008 called uh, A Seal Development in- Indicates the Independent Evolution of the Bilaterian Mouth and Anus. All right. Now, that that paper title is lacking in the humor department, I will admit. Yeah, they didn't. They had, didn't have their pun game going yeah, yet. Yeah. So, what did they find? How do you get from one opening to two? Well, in previous thinking, and this was uh, expressed in a Nature News article on the paper by a researcher named Detlev Arendt, who's at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg. It doesn't make sense for a new hole on the opposite end of the body from the mouth to just appear. So, instead, Arendt and others believed that. Over time, what happened is the mouth elongated and eventually separated into two mouths more side by side connecting to the same digestive sac. So you wouldn't have a one-way through gut yet. You'd have sort of a U-shaped digestive sac with two mouths. Okay, so the idea is uh, imagine an alien species Mm -hmm. eats through its mouth, digests, and then poops out its mouth, and then it evolves to where it just has two mouths – the pooping mouth and the eating mouth. Yeah, exactly. So you've got two all-purpose mouths that go both ways, and this evolves over time to a through gut that goes one way. And, you know, once you had these two mouth openings, one of them could sort of migrate back over time <laughs> and go, go down to the bottom of the organism, develop different specialization, and eventually become an anus. Now, of course, we do have some organisms where they still have that essential U-shape. Uh, say, uh, say snails and slugs. Yeah. Slugs, even though they have no shell, evolved from shelled snails, mm-hmm. and therefore they still have the front-loaded uh, defecation model. Oh, but do you know if in their case, uh, is it just two mouths and it goes either way, or is it a one-way system? I believe it is a one-way system, yes. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm thinking back to, to past slug and snail research. All right. Uh, so here's where Hainal and Martindale, uh, disagreed. So they, in, so that, that was the old view, right? That you'd have two mouths and eventually the two mouths became a mouth and an anus, differently specialized. But Hainal and Martindale disagreed. They studied an organism called Convolotriloba longifissura, which is a flatworm with this kind of U-shaped two-gut or two-mouth gut. And they compared it to worms with a one-way gut containing a mouth and an anus. Now, earlier we mentioned that there are genes associated with the presence of an anus, right? Uh, there, there were the two genes we mentioned earlier. Now, when those get expressed, the body is usually building anal tissue. Well, in this earlier case from 2008, Hainal and Martindale discovered that Longifissura expressed mouth-building genes, not anal or hindgut-building genes when building its two mouths. So both of those genes were genetically reading as mouths – or both of those uh, mouths, sorry, were genetically reading as mouths – but uh but the longifissura did express hindgut or anal building genes found in other species at the rear end of its body and this suggests that a mouth did not turn into an anus but the anus developed from some other structure being expressed at the rear end of the animal so if it wasn't a mouth that turned into an anus what is this structure or tissue at the rear end of the animal that could give rise to the development of an anus and they thought what about sexual tissue? Exactly. So this brings us back to the uh, 2015 paper by Hainal and Martin Duran. 
And all of this relates to something known as the gonopore. Mm. This is an opening that releases sperm in the acela class of simple, or at least evolutionarily simple, invertebrates. Uh, they have no through gut, no circulatory system, no respiratory system, and no anus. And uh, the researchers think that the origin of the gonopore may be linked to the origin of the anus. Yeah, going back to that point about the genes, they say the gene expression of the acyl orthologs of brachiuri and the caudal CDX gene, CDX, in the posterior male gonopore, meaning the, the male sex organ at the back of these little organisms, it suggests that instead there is, quote, an evolutionary relationship between the bilaterian hindgut and the acyl gonopore. So they're looking at the way genes are expressed and saying, like, there, there appears to be a genetic to tissue link between this sex organ in this very simple multicellular organism and what eventually turns into the anus in more complex creatures that have an anus. But they admit in their their 2015 paper that this is not a lock. It's not like we know exactly where the anus came from or that it's linked to this acyl gonopore. Uh, they say it's still vague, quote, how the acyl gonopore should be related to the bilaterian hindgut. A possible scenario, they write, could be the connection of the male reproductive organ system to the bilaterian digestive tract forming back to the cloaca. Ah. So the, so you'd get a cloaca because remember, as we said earlier, the cloaca combines uh, a, a hole that deals with reproduction. It deals with excretion of liquid waste and excretion of solid waste. It puts it all in one hole. So they're saying, what if what happened is you got this, uh, the, you know, this ancient double duty hole that became a cloaca. And then they say, quote, this would thus provide an alternative hypothesis, which would connect first the male reproductive system with the gut and later with the female reproductive system. All right, so if I'm understanding this argument correctly, something like the gonopore is an archaic, serves as an archaic body opening. Yes, this primitive sex organ that we think something like it was present in our way, way distant ancestors of, with, that had bilateral symmetry. And as such, it's something of not only a, a primitive sex organ, it's sort of a, a proto-anus. Yes, it becomes the proto-anus, which eventually joins together the reproductive and the digestive tract. And then over time, in much later organisms, those things can separate again. In 2015, when this paper came out, uh, the BBC talked to Hainal, and uh, he had this wonderful quote uh, that he shared. Our own hypothesis is that the anal opening has some evolutionary connection to the male gonopore. This, of course, makes the whole subject even more delicate. But this is how nature is. Nature does not care about taboos in human society. <laughs> Look at him flouting those taboos. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's just another example of how if we ignore the anus, uh, we do ourselves a disservice. In this case, in the realm of evolutionary biology. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't let social mores keep you from studying ancient anuses. Exactly. So I, I hope at the end of this episode, everyone does have a new respect for the anus, a new respect for the development of the anus and how we, we got to the point that we have them. Because, I mean, unless you had some sort of magical idea in your head that, you know, a, a fallen titan uh, brought the Promethean anus to the people of Earth and, mm -hmm. and, and thus relieved them of their uh, their dire constipation, you know, it had to come from somewhere. And I think part of that whole, like, taboo aspect of the anus, don't think about the anus, it makes us often not question where it came from and how it developed over time. Well, also, one thing you will hear from doctors and proctologists is, uh, you know, you, you might want to pay attention to your anus. You might mm -hmm. want to think about it. Like some anal cancers can be caught early if you pay attention to it. Also, one thing I randomly came across while we were preparing for this episode, apparently you shouldn't sit on the toilet for a really long time. Huh. Yeah, doctors say don't don't just sit there on your phone for an hour. I know people do that now sometimes. Well, those know, phones, the phone games are better than ever before, so it, uh, it's understandable. No, but apparently that's not good for Uranus. Okay, so if you are listening to this podcast right now on the toilet, mm -hmm. and you have listened to the entire episode on the toilet, it's probably time to move. Can I add one more thing about yes. the research process here? By all means. While we were reading, uh, you know, I was looking for good scientific articles about the anus. Uh, and one thing I came across was this article full of obvious lies about how brown recluse spiders make nests in the human anus. What? It's not true, but I laughed very hard. I'm not sure what prompted the writing of such a thing. I ran across a, a, a few things that made me giggle. One in particular, though, uh, 
I, I saw one of these question sites. I forget which one it was, but it's the one where you click on the answer and like it slides over. Uh, you click on the the question and it slides over and gives you an answer that's also user submitted. Uh, oh boy, yeah. yeah. So, so the you quest- get some good answers, I bet. Yeah, the question was, do butterflies have anuses? And the answer was, yes, they have the second largest on Earth. Uh, <laughs> I, I do not believe that is accurate, uh, but it it made me laugh. Oh, man. They have the second largest on Earth, and it's often colonized by brown recluse nests. Probably, according to, you know, user-generated scientific knowledge. So, yeah, hopefully you're leaving this episode more knowledgeable of the anus uh, than you were when you came in. Yeah, the anus. It's scientifically interesting. It's useful. You you should appreciate it. All right. Well, as we... uh reach the posterior end of the podcast we should drive home that hey if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind if you want to explore some blog posts and find links to our various social media accounts head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com Big thanks as always to our audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison and if you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other or to let us know a topic you'd like us to do in the future or just to say hi you can email us as always at BlowTheMind at how stuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.